BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Over the past half a century, we've been experiencing the same hurricanes, blizzards, and storms. Our changing climate may have altered how these weather phenomena act, and in turn, the technology we use to research and forecast these events have changed as well. From a local National Weather Service office to the Storm Prediction Center and the Weather Prediction Center, today's guest has seen decades of change across these institutions and has made them all greater along the way. We're talking to Greg Carbon, Chief of Forecast Operations at the Weather Prediction Center, ahead of his well-deserved retirement. Greg, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Marshall. Welcome. I'm well, glad to be here, and um, we'll have a great chat, chat today. Yeah, it's just amazing. And, you know, shout out to my colleagues at the Weather Channel, and shout out to Greg, because, you know, we're bringing you some new and exciting things at the podcast, but Greg is our guinea pig today, walking through some of those technological <laughs> challenges, but the podcast will be that much more awesome because of Greg Carbon's patience with us today. Now, Greg, <laughs> I start off every podcast with the question that I ask every guest, how'd you become a weather geek? So my uh, intro into weather is a combination of, uh, of experiencing uh, phenomenal snowfall, but also also a mentor in, in, in my family who took weather records and, and uh, kind of brought me along and, and showed me how you could do meteorology with very few uh, uh, scientific tools. You know, uh, I was interested in, in uh, biology i was interested in chemistry um but you know those things require certain tools you want a microscope or a chemistry set meteorology has a very low uh entry point as far as what tools you need a thermometer and a rain gauge and a notebook and you can get started as a meteorologist and so um through some mentorship and then watching snowstorms in in northern new england um i i became passionate about uh about meteorology as a science to pursue so at this point let me just give you a bit of background on Greg's career, and then I'm going to ask him for his own take on it. So Greg's currently the chief of forecast operations at the Weather Prediction Center. You may know that as WPC, and he's been in that role since 2016. Uh, previously, he was a warning coordination meteorologist, or WCM, at the Storm Prediction Center, and has also worked with the National Weather Service and private sector. He has graduate coursework at the University of Oklahoma. OMA and a bachelor's degree in meteorology from Linden State College. So I just laid all of that out for you, but many of our Weather Geeks listeners may not understand the full scope of the ecosystem that is the National Weather Service. So Greg, tell us a little bit about sort of some of your early sort of career paths and then how it evolved to you arriving at WPC. So yeah, I, I you know I'm very lucky, very fortunate uh, to have come across opportunities. I think at a very early stage, I knew that I wanted to pursue operational meteorology. 
with a you know with a bit of research as well. Um, yeah. Coming from that early science uh, passion background, um, I wanted to be engaged in in forecasting day to day weather, but also understanding the science and and, and try to pursue uh, ways to advance it. When I first graduated uh, from Linden State College with an undergraduate degree, very, very much the, about the same time as Jim Cantori, we were classmates. I was going to um, mention that I thought yeah, Jim was yeah. there around the time. Yeah, we were, and and I think you know we, we both shared this this similar passion for uh, for weather and understanding uh, weather and forecasting. And Jim pursued a, uh, um, the broadcast meteorology path, and and I pursued sort of the operations forecast path. Um, I knew I wanted uh, a position with the National Weather Service. However, at the time, uh, this was mid '80s, uh, there weren't a lot of opportunities uh, with the U.S. government. There was not a lot of hiring going on at that time, and so I ended up taking a position uh, with a private sector company uh, that's still in business and still have some folks, uh, meteorologists working there, uh, uh, Fleet Weather in Southeast New York. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of where I got my start. Uh, broadcast did a little bit of broadcasting too, mostly radio work, um, and uh, and work on. Uh, we did a lot of different forecasting for ships and and ports and and you know trying to short fused warnings uh, for port operations, um, and that was that was my start. I then jumped from that into a contract position um, at the airport up in Montpelier, Vermont, doing weather observations for a while and some consulting work with power companies up there. And then the weather service started hiring. They opened up and uh, decided to put in for a, a position and was hired on in Charlotte, North Carolina. So the trip from from Vermont to North Carolina was uh, brought the whole family, two cars, two cats, two kids. <laughs> And got my start with uh, with the National Weather Service in Charlotte, and I was I was in heaven. That's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be working operations. They were located at the airport. Uh, they had a, a 1974 C uh, C band uh, radar for local warning there, and it was wonderful. I, it was just a really great experience uh, learning the you know ropes as far as the the entry level position uh, with the weather service. Um, I really enjoyed the the climate down there, and then the timing of thunderstorm development. Every day, you'd have the thunderstorms pop up over the the, the Appalachian Mountains, and they would drift into the Piedmont, and it could get pretty busy uh, during the uh, the spring and summer months there. Of course, you had a major airport, so airport operations were very keen on 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 weather and changing conditions, and uh, had a interesting boss. He was he was a hard boss, but he was he was fair, and uh, he ran a tight ship there. And that was uh, that was my start. Went from there to Wilmington, North Carolina, on the coast. Um, really enjoyed it there as well. Uh, fascinating weather uh, right there with the Gulf Stream offshore and the topography of the East Coast. And I always thought of Wilmington as sort of being the you know the birthing grounds of the East Coast uh, cyclones that I grew up with, watching up in northern New England. That's where they got their start. And, uh, and it was fascinating to learn about the dynamics and the details of the meteorology with regard to the you know, genesis of these storm systems. I uh, saw really interesting weather in Wilmington. I wasn't there very long when an opening came up in Norman, Oklahoma, um, and they were moving the Severe Storms Prediction Center from Kansas City uh, to Norman to be co-located with the University of Oklahoma and the National Severe Storms Laboratory. And my boss in Wilmington had worked for the Severe Storms Lab in Kansas City, 
And he said, if you want to, if you want to go to Oklahoma, <laughs> I can certainly, <laughs> you know, uh, help you get there. Uh, you've been a great uh, asset for the for the office here in Wilmington. Uh, but I understand, you know, you want to want to move forward in your career. This might be a good opportunity. Uh, and that was sort of the last real big move uh, up until seven years ago. So I spent 20 years in Oklahoma uh, at the Storm Prediction Center, essentially working my way up through the ranks and, and learning the, the ropes. And never in my wildest dreams did I think I would go from loving snowstorms to kind of being a spokesperson for NOAA uh, with regard to severe storm forecasting and tornado forecasting. That was a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience and uh, 20, 20 years of work there, raised the, the family there. Um, once the kids were out, uh, the, the opportunity came to, to come back east. And so it took, uh, took the job in 2016, um, again, kind of looking for opportunities and looking for challenges and came back uh, to the Weather Prediction Center in 2016 as the operations branch chief and have been here since then. So... It's been a wonderful career. Talking with Greg Carbon of National Weather Service, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. Greg, let's set the stage for our listeners and our viewers on the difference between what the SPC does and what WPC does, because you and I are sort of familiar with that sort of ecosystem, if you will. Sure. Talk a little bit about sort of the responsibilities of SPC and WPC and perhaps how they've evolved over the years. Well, as you know, uh, that you know that the atmosphere uh, works in in many mysterious ways and across many scales, right? So, you know, a thunderstorm is a small scale aspect of uh, of the atmosphere, while you know, major storm systems, mid latitude cyclones, winter storms like we're dealing with uh, this week, uh, Arctic outbreaks those are those are larger scale uh, uh, systems, um, and and essentially the weather service has. Um, developed a, a set of centers that are focused on either a, a scale challenge or a particular forecast challenge. So in this in the case of the Storm Prediction Center, it, it's both a, a scale and phenomenon challenge. Um, you know, focus on severe thunderstorm development, focus on tornado potential, focus on hail, high winds associated with thunderstorms, develop a cadre of forecasters who are exposed to these forecast challenges day in and day out. And if you can hold on to them long enough, <laughs> and, and they will because these are wonderful places to work, you can really build up expertise at these national centers. Uh, so with the Storm Prediction Center, the focus is on severe convection or thunderstorms. Uh, here at the Weather Prediction Center, the focus has been on uh, for many years, um, uh, over 40 years uh, looking at precipitation forecasting, trying to get the uh, the forecast right for rainfall, uh, snowfall, and especially more recently, extreme events, extreme rain, uh, extreme winter weather, extreme temperatures. Uh, so temperatures, precipitation are our focus here at the Weather Prediction Center. The Aviation Weather Center is located in Kansas City. They're responsible for weather in the air. You know, basically aviation uh, interests are incredibly dependent on accurate forecasting. And so the Aviation Weather Center is focused on that. The Hurricane Center down in Miami, we all know what they do. And they have a, a you know, a, a staff of exceptional meteorologists whose sole purpose is to get the hurricane forecasts right uh, and to get the messaging right. So each center has its special specialists and, uh, and expertise grown over the years. And also each center has a research component associated with it that specializes in trying to improve the forecasts through research to operations. 
talking with Greg Carbon. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Greg the big question pretty early in the podcast. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with my colleague, Greg Carbon, the National Weather Service. We're looking back and forward on his career. He's someone that I've actually known and sort of uh, admired from afar from uh, uh, quite a bit of time as someone coming up in this field. Uh, you knew the name Greg Carbon, and so it's really an honor to be able to talk to him and sort of pick his brain on how things have changed. And that's where I wanted to go next with my question. What are some of the biggest changes in your illustrious career within the National Weather Service that you have seen over the span of your career, positive or negative? Sure. Well, there are many. <laughs> it's hard to know where to start, you know. Um, it's really been, um, and I'm sure this is the case for other sciences, other endeavors. You know, if you look at, at medicine or computing, um, there've been tremendous advances in in the technology and the application of that technology uh, to improve um, improve our lives and improve society. And and with meteorology, uh, specifically, my experience with meteorology, you know, I started in the in the days of the fax maps. You know, we would oh, wait for the, the facsimile maps to come out. From the past. Yeah. Yeah. And um and that was the way you, you received the latest the latest data and information. Um interestingly, my my career with the National Weather Service coincided with uh the the birth of the internet. And so, you know, using uh 
using the internet to access data uh, uh, changed, changed everything. And we had an amazing uh, uh, ability all of a sudden to to download enormous amounts of data uh, over over the internet. At that time, it was you know over the modem, <laughs> but you could you could utilize uh, the internet and then watching that grow to the World Wide Web uh, from from early technologies. That has to be one of the you know one of the big uh, remarkable technological changes I've seen. One other aspect that stands out is the change from analog to digital technology when it comes to radar. Uh, so when I started, we used analog radar uh, essentially to detect thunderstorm formation, heavy rain or snow or hail. And there were all sorts of techniques you would use on this display. You probably remember the old sweeping displays that you would see on the cathode ray tube. And I remember my first boss had a test where you had to go in. He would go into the radar room, and these were these were rooms that were darkened oh, yeah. so that you could see the, the the screen. So the radar had its own room, and he would go in there and he would mess up all the knobs. He would, you know, and these systems have a lot of a lot of knobs, a lot of uh, uh, dials, and and things that need to be tuned correctly in order for them to work. So his test for any intern coming on is to go in there mess up the whole console and then you go in and get it up and running and so i'm a geek i, I love this stuff right so <laughs> we love it stuff, too yeah i was a ham radio operator and and you know technically relatively technically savvy so i said okay i'm ready went in the room got it set up and i came out and i said it's ready to go and he looked at me and he said you couldn't have done it you couldn't have done it that fast no nobody's done it that fast like i said he was a little bit hard-nosed about stuff ex-military came in he went in looked at it and he's i guess you got it you passed you can do you can operate the radar so those were the the, the analog systems that were used uh for weather detection um and then the uh, wsr 1988 sounds like a long time ago but that technology was uh very advanced at the time uh using doppler um concepts to uh to build the radar system that we now have basically across the the united states and to watch this transition from analog to digital uh, to be involved in it to go from working the radar in the dark uh, analog radar room and then walking out and operating on the uh the modern uh, digital radar um was really just a, an experience I'll, I'll i'll treasure because you could really see the the advances right in your front of your eyes as far as what you could see inside of storms uh the information coming out of the doppler radar uh was just a remarkable advance um so that's that's really one of the uh, more memorable experiences in my career you know I'm, I'm talking with greg carbon and it's just fascinating to hear some of his perspective let me read you some things uh in september 2016 uh, you received the Theodore Fujita Research Achievement Award and the citation read for your groundbreaking work on severe weather climatology, which has revolutionized the way the meteorological community visualizes and uses severe weather statistics. Um, also, uh, there was research at the time that you were the WCM at SPC in tornado warning lead times as well. So you mentioned this earlier that though you're in an operationalized environment at the Weather Service, there's research that's ongoing as well. Tell us how research shaped your career. So there's always the unknown, um, and and forecasters, operational forecasters, um, it, they can only improve if they look at 
what went wrong. And you don't have to wait around very long to have a, a, a poor forecast. Um, you, you have to either build a thick skin uh, to, to Mother Nature or, or you find another career uh, because uh, there's, there's always uncertainty associated with forecasting. And when it comes to severe weather forecasting, um, the details are really difficult to pin down with any kind of lead time. Uh, so as you're developing your, your outlook forecasts or maybe even issuing a severe thunderstorm or tornado watch, that doesn't go well. Now, when we say go well, we mean doesn't necessarily verify with storms uh, as you expected. You go back and you try to figure out, well, what what did I see or where did I misinterpret the data um, uh, to make a decision uh, to go with this? And so constantly uh, it's a feedback loop. You know, you're, you're trying to improve your understanding of the atmosphere by going back and seeing what actually happened and comparing that with what your assumptions were beforehand. It, it, it's, it's classic science, right? It's observations drive your, your theory, and then you, you test that theory and see if you can find those observations. Um, the other large, uh, pretty dramatic advances in, in forecasting have come with ensembles, you know, the ability of computers to run more than one, one particular model, uh, as well as the advances in the resolution of those models. So you're able to now simulate almost a, an actual thunderstorm. You know, when we started out in in uh, in meteorology, you were making grand assumptions about what the model considered a thunderstorm. Model could not generate an ideal, you know, individual thunderstorm. We're now at the point where the uh, the, the simulations look just like what you see on radar, which can be a little dangerous uh, yeah. <laughs> because they can look too real. Um, and you've got to know that that is not the real atmosphere you're looking at. That's a simulation and it's not going to be perfect. So you have to learn from those simulations where they're good and where they're not so good, where you need to, you know, make certain assumptions and, and where, you know, you might want to change your, uh, your uh, forecast based on, on other information, the environment, the pattern, what's on radar, what's on satellite. Talking with Greg Carbon, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And now in your role at WPC and SPC, and you're about to retire, so maybe I can ask this question and you you can give a, give me an answer here and not be worried about the consequences. I, I know you're still technically employed with NOAA, but what are your thoughts? I mean, there's a lot of discussion now on lead time. Uh, can we ever have too much? I mean, we've made some advances, but I've seen, I've seen some discussion out there in terms of if we could actually have the science to get us to an hour lead time for a tornado warning. Is that a good thing? What, what are your What are your thoughts on that discussion? Well, first, let me let me answer uh, the uh, the the point about um, being open and honest and transparent. I will. I've given a lot of credit to this agency uh, as a scientific agency. Um, I've never had any any issue or concern about speaking my mind. Uh, I think that you know that says a lot uh, for working for uh, for NOAA and the National Weather Service. Um, you know, anybody has to be concerned. They're not necessarily speaking for everyone in the agency, um, but I think the idea that science comes first and that we try to be, you know, be true to the science, uh, regardless of where that may lead us, is is something that is supported. Um, I know it's supported by my immediate boss, and it's supported by that by the agency. Here, here, um, I agree. Yeah. So for 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 lead time, yeah, that's a great question, right? I mean, we talk about. I had a talk yesterday um, 
where I was focusing on winter storms. Um, right now, the, the traditional uh, thought is that you might want to get a winter storm watch out about three days, um, you know, three days in advance of the event. Um, if there's nothing else going on, you know, it's, it gets complicated if there are multiple events like we're seeing this January across the country. But um, three days, it seems like a reasonable time. But the science is now getting to the point where you might actually have the ability to issue a winter storm watch at four days or, or even five um, if the confidence is there. Um, that's a real paradigm shift for for many forecasters, right? And we're starting to think about, well, what's the benefit of that? Uh, and and what would you do with that information? Uh, and certainly, there's there's more time to prepare. Uh, there's not a mad rush at the grocery store at the last minute for people to get their bread and milk. No, rich uh, toast you know, know, run. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, you know, so infrastructure could could possibly benefit from from longer lead time with respect to uh, to winter. Uh, and that's kind of my my uh, focus at, at this point in my career. Now, if we go back to severe storm forecasting. So the challenge there is how good can you be? Uh, you're talking about, an with respect to a tornado, right? Uh, you're talking about an incredibly small scale uh, event, although there may be numerous tornadoes over a particular region. Um, what can you do with a significant lead time in those events? Now, um, you know, and what is significant lead time uh, right now, you know, Nine to thirteen minutes, I think, is the average uh, warning lead time ahead of a tornado event, uh, and there are a lot of false alarms uh, with with uh, with those events. And and there's a debate about whether false alarm is a is a meaningful problem. Um, in some areas, it might be; in others, you know, it's so infrequent that you know it's in the noise. Um, so I do think that there is a balance between um, confidence in an event, but also public safety uh, and erring on the side of caution. Um, Dr. Doswell might have called it the inverse penalty function, right? So you might be quite aggressive and warn, even though there's a high probability of a miss or a false alarm, because to not capture the event would be potentially devastating. And so you might lean toward being a little more uh, aggressive in your warning strategy and trying to get out there ahead of something uh, so you don't miss, miss it. Uh, but if you miss it, maybe the penalty isn't as high uh, as if, um, or if you don't miss it, you know, so there's, there's a balance. Um, and I, I'm not sure if I have a good answer for what the ideal lead time is or what you could do uh, with that lead time. Um, I think that's the, the nature of, of forecasting going from the large scale, this, this, what we call this facets concept that's been developed, um, forecasting a continuum of environmental threats. So as you're out far in time, your certainty of an event is quite large. Our uncertainty is quite large. As you get closer, it may get the, the certainty of that event may get greater, uh, and you go from outlook scale to watch scale to warning scale to the event. Now, the problem with that concept is it's not linear. Uh, we all know that sometimes between the watch and the warning, there can still be tremendous uncertainty. Uh, and so it's important to keep in mind that this is just sort of a conceptual approach to challenging hazardous weather forecasting. Um, it's, it, it is a good approach, I think, and it, it makes sense that you give people um, a heads up in a general sense. And then as you get closer to the event, you're honest and you have to be honest about what you know and what you don't know. We're still uncertain. This is the general area we expect to see a threat this afternoon. 
Um, and I know that different municipalities have taken different approaches to using this information. Um, for example, I think in Alabama, that might be a moderate risk day, they, they, uh, they call school law. Um, and that may be a wise decision uh, if, if the schools don't provide, you know, necessarily an adequate shelter. Um, but if the schools are good at providing shelter, it might be better to have school on those days. So these are really challenging, complex societal cha uh, issues with respect to safety in, in light of hazardous weather. That's an interesting point because here in Georgia, where I am, I've seen some school districts close and there are people on social media, why are we closing school for rain and so forth and so on. But I think you hit it on the head in terms of the dis different risk calculations for those jurisdictions. Now, when we come back in this last segment, I want to ask Greg about what some of his more memorable weather events that he has covered and get his thoughts on where we're going with AI and weather forecasting when we get back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Greg Carbon from the National Weather Service. And by the way, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Chuck Doswell, who you heard Greg mention. For those of you that are old timers with Weather Geeks, I mean, going back to the first television broadcast of the show, you'll recall that Dr. Chuck Doswell was our first ever guest on Weather Geeks. So I think he's someone that Greg and I both admire and look up to and certainly a pillar in this field. Now, Greg, I, 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 you've been at this a while. Are there any particular weather events that sort of stick out in your mind over your career and for when, for what reason? Sure. Well, again, going back to uh, northern New England, probably one of the first uh, major snowstorm events that I remember being as a meteorologist was the, the uh, storm of the century uh, in March of 1993, um, so that that storm brought blizzard conditions as far south as the Deep South, and you know pummeled parts of the Appalachians for uh, many feet of snow, uh, high winds, and high surf all the way up the coast. Uh, if I go back even farther than that, it was probably the the blizzard of 1978 in New England. Uh, but moving into my career, I, I think I'd have to place the April um, uh, 2011 uh, tornado outbreak. Uh, across the South, uh, because that was a point in my career when uh, I was working uh, these events uh, from a, a communications and also a, a uh, an assessment uh, perspective after the event, trying to account for uh, the damages, trying to account for the number of fatalities. Uh, and that April really stands out as a devastating uh, uh, tornado outbreak. And then um, having responsibility to speak to that event and, and provide some historic perspective. Um, another uh, uh, mentor at the time, and, and another person I'll shout out was Dr. Hal Harold Brooks, sure. who you know Harold and I appeared on your your show, I think uh, uh, together very early um, in the, the TV days for sure. Right, and uh, and Harold and I worked very closely together 
uh, in terms of assessing the uh, the tornado event in, in April on April twenty seventh, twenty eleven, tallying uh, the the losses uh, and of lives, and and then trying to understand the meteorology. Um, uh, Chuck Doswell, Harold, and I wrote an article for the Royal Meteorological Journal uh, about the entire month of April and how uh, unusually active it was. Uh, and those are really memorable and uh, rewarding experiences that I've had in my career. So I mentioned before the last break, I mentioned things like AI, because certainly we're hearing quite a bit about that across the weather, water, and climate enterprise. As you sort of enter sort of the retirement phase of your career, you were versed in what's going on and where things are going. Uh, what are some things that you would like to see change or evolve across the weather enterprise, uh, particularly in light of things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, the influx of social sciences into uh, what we do? Just where, where do you see things going forward? That's a great question. Um, so I definitely uh, interested in. I've always been interested in in computer science and in utilizing the power of computing uh, to understand the atmosphere, to understand patterns, uh, to put put events in perspective. So I've always been a dabbler and and a, and a bit of a coder myself, um, trying to visualize uh, the complex nature of of weather and forecasting. So one of my plans in retirement actually is to build my own machine learning code, um, not really related to, to meteorology, but I want to I want to understand more about computer vision, uh, about how computers run neural networks and and the fascinating and mysterious aspects of those systems and and how output you know can be a complete surprise uh, from them. Um, so I'm I'm interested in in digging in a little deeper on that topic. Um, there have been some pretty remarkable recent advances uh, in applying um, machine learning and AI, um, and it makes sense. Uh, when you think about it, uh, so much of what we do as human forecasters is related to pattern recognition. Yeah. Um, and so you can train an AI basically to uh, generate a, a forecast based on pattern, based on the current pattern and, and what, what will come uh, after that, the current how the current pattern evolves into a future pattern. Um, so, so it's not really surprising to see some of the advances being made uh, with respect to AI. Uh, what is also quite remarkable is that there's a lot of backend processing required, right? So, our, our current framework for numerical model uh, modeling and numerical weather prediction. There's a lot of front end price processing. You've got to pull in a number of observations. You have to do quality control, and then you have to run the model out in time uh, on some of the fastest computers in the world. And that they, they, even though they're fast, they still take time to generate simulations of the atmosphere. Um, and in an ensemble system, you're doing that across 100 different models. So there's a, there's a real high-end uh, cost to processing the current generation of numerical weather models. In AI, all of that processing is actually done uh, ahead of time, so that all of the you know inputs are based on past uh, patterns of the atmosphere at really really high resolution, um, and you're you're caught you're you're generating a, a learning model uh, that has to run through um, um, 
you know, it tests itself, uh, it tests against itself. So it's grading itself, it's throwing out poor solutions and keeping good solutions, and it learns. Um, and so, but that 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 is uh, also computationally intensive. But once it's done, you can apply that concept immediately to uh, to the weather forecast. So it's a fascinating aspect of where where you put your compute power. Do you put it before beforehand, or do you put it? You know, up and during the event for every every forecast. Um, so there are benefits to both approaches. I think is what we're seeing. Um, I think that we uh, hold out hope that you could generate uh, ensemble forecasts faster. So that means you could probably generate more of them uh, using an AI machine learning approach. Um, I'm not an expert. I've read a couple papers regarding uh, the application of uh, machine learning to forecasting. It's it's an absolutely fascinating area that I want to learn more about. And I think it will push the science forward like so many other things have, like Doppler radar, like satellite, like numerical weather prediction, high resolution. AI is just another step. Now, the question is, is it, is it an exponential growth in terms of our predictability? At the end of the day, we all learn from Ed Lorenz that there is a limit to predictability. And so even with AI, it's probably not the silver bullet. Yeah, chaos theory and Ed Lorenz. Now, one question people can, are concerned about is, will it take the human uh, being out of the process? Yeah. Radar right. didn't do it. Satellites and ensemble models didn't do it. Do you, you, you certainly sound like you believe the AI as a tool, but it doesn't threaten human intervention in the forecast process. At the end of the day, I, you know, the analogy that, uh, that I think is most appropriate here, perhaps, especially when it comes to significantly dangerous weather, um, is the analogy of the pilot in the cockpit. You know, we, we've had the technology for planes to fly essentially on their own for, for decades. Nobody wants to fly in a plane without a pilot, <laughs> and so I think um, you know for a while we're gonna we're gonna want the forecaster to translate the information and provide some level of confidence or uncertainty uh, to decision makers and the general public. That's a great analogy and a good place to end it. Any final words to our listeners? Some of which I know are very aware of you and your career. So, uh, as someone who's had such an illustrious career. I want to sort of defer to you for these last few seconds. If you want to share anything, we have a fairly broad listenership. Well, thanks again, Marshall, for for having me today. Um, I'm I'm a little uncertain about what what retirement will bring. I think anybody in my position probably would be. Um, I consider myself incredibly lucky to to have had the experiences I've had uh, to be engaged in the science. I am interested in pursuing uh, mentorship for others who are interested in science, and and uh, and hopefully I can do that even in retirement. I'm never going to lose my fascination for for what goes on in the atmosphere. Every day is different. Um, I'll probably go back to a more simple approach though, and and have a little logbook with a max min thermometer and the weather station, and keep track of uh, local weather. Uh, but I'll remain engaged, uh, definitely, and look forward to continued research and, and understanding of what's going on. Well, you know, we certainly wish you the best and congratulations on, on this milestone in your career. And thank you for coming on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, again, as you mentioned, you were also on the Weather Geeks television show. Now we're somewhat of a hybrid in that we do a podcast and we air on the Weather Channel streaming app and streaming channels on your smart TV. So be sure to check us out there as well. By the way, Weather Geeks listeners, tweet me and tell me how many and which guests have appeared on the television show as well as the podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. We know that Greg is one. 
By the way, Greg, thank you again. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> Auto Trader.